Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. This episode is brought to you by Mural, a digital workspace for visual collaboration. At Voltage Control, we use Mural to facilitate engaging and productive meetings and workshops from anywhere. Mural gives teams the means, methods, and freedom to collaborate visually. Use their suite of facilitation superpowers to control the virtual room and solve tough problems as a team with their pre-built templates and guided methods. To see for yourself why companies like IBM, Atlassian, and E-Trade rely on Mural, start your 30-day trial at mural.co. That's M-U-R-A-L dot C-O. Today, I'm with Jan Devish, an executive professor at Flanders Business School, where he teaches organizational development and human capital design. He is also managing director at Connect and Transform, where he helps teams and organizations cope with increasing complexity. Jan is the author of the book, Practices of Dynamic Collaboration. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. So I'd like to start off just hearing a little bit about how you got started in facilitating. Well, I think I facilitated all my life, so it's very difficult to uh, uh, kind of find a moment where it started. Uh, I, uh, after a career of 17 years in uh, HR management functions, I uh, started my own consultancy practice, and it's through uh, organizational redesign work uh, that I mainly got into uh, facilitation work and process facilitation work. So it's through organizational development. Uh, It's also through partly uh, uh, work from Edgar Schein, Archeries uh, uh, as organizational development consultants uh, focused on uh, learning uh, and uh, with the question how do people uh, learn in meetings that I got interested in facilitation work because as a manager I uh, my natural eye was on getting things done not on uh, ensuring that I got everybody with me in getting the things done. Mm, that's interesting. So let's unpack that a little bit. What well, what did you find on that journey where as you started to notice that your focus was on getting the things done versus bringing everyone with you? Well, in the late 90s, uh, I came into contact with uh, colleagues who were very uh, interested and busy in researching adult development. And uh, getting things done uh, is a specific phase in adult development, uh, which they call quite an instrumental way of doing things. And the moment I became conscious uh, that I was operating from a certain script, being the instrumental script, uh, I started uh, my own developmental journey, uh, uh, both on in the domain of uh, social-emotional intelligence uh, and maturity and uh, on the other side in uh, 
looking at thought structures in teams and in groups and seeing how uh, the scripts that I was using implicitly and the maps uh, that allowed me uh, to take perspectives, to integrate perspectives in teams uh, and in all kinds of communications hindered me and uh, how I could break out of uh, those patterns. So uh, I quickly saw from uh, the end of the 90s how uh, meetings sometimes unfolded in narrowing the team that uh, was on the table, creating a lot of rework, creating a lot of uh, uh, side focus uh, and ending up in not uh, delivering on what was promised and not delivering on the budgets and the outcomes. Mm. So it's, it's basically through adult development work uh, and that further brought me into complexity science and uh, how can we break through the logical, analytical way of thinking in meetings because that uh, kind of uh, strengthens uh, the, the uh, fragmentation in meetings and hinders people to uh, start really connecting ideas and transcending tensions in uh, meetings. So it's uh, basically from the uh, end of 2009-2010 that I really I dived deeper into the subject of well how can I start seeing what happens in groups as an interplay of meeting of minds. Most facilitation work uh, was focused on behavior and procedures and tools uh, to communicate better. But the essence for me, uh, at least what I learned, is that the thinking uh, comes before the doing. And so it's all about the type of perspective taking and perspective integration uh, that happens in meetings. And I found that uh, most of the literature, let's say about 95%, even archerists, even Schoen, even Shine, uh, and more recently uh, Marshall, for example, they all focus on uh, tools and frameworks that uh, enable to communicate better without asking the question, how can, uh, can the perspective taking that lies at the source of action uh, be changed? So it's uh, about building a kind of a reflective practice in uh, teams. And uh, from, well, from about 10 years ago, I started to focus not on facilitation of meetings, but on what I call critical facilitation of meetings, which is about uh, facilitating the thought, the, the sharing of thoughts in uh, meetings, which is quite different from just empathic listening and following a number of uh, uh, behavioral uh, procedures. 
So, so this sharing of thoughts, let's unpack that a little bit. How does that work so that we can create this reflective practice that we're seeking? Well, it starts by uh, simply observing uh, your own thinking and your own thinking structures. Uh, by thinking structure, I mean a kind of a, a map that you use to make sense of uh, reality. For example, we use, uh, we all use simple cause-effect uh, structures in our reasoning. That's what the basis of logical analytical thinking. We all use structures such as fragmenting an, a complex issue into sub-themes and approaching those sub-themes and trying to solve them. That's a kind of a thought structure. You believe that if you apply that thought structure, uh, that you will solve problems. But adult development research uh, showed us that uh, we use plenty of different, I would almost say non-rational thought structures. For example, uh, being aware that you can always take a bigger picture uh, point of view on a situation or a problem. Uh, being aware that each problem might be layered or stratified. Uh, so the, these, these are two examples of thought structures that allow you to make sense of context. Uh, there are three other broad classes of thought structures. Uh, the second one is process thinking, being aware that how we conceive something uh, is embedded in dynamics, in perspectives on time, what we find relevant in the past or in the future and uh, being aware that how you conceive the future determines even how you look at the past and vice versa. And so uh, thought structures that have to do with how you handle time and uh, conceive dynamics, uh, these are the second uh, class of thought structures. We are all aware of one of those thought structures, namely the thesis, antithesis, synthesis uh, unfolding. But it's only one of the seven uh, process class related thought structures. And then you have a third category aimed at relationship and how you conceive, conceive structural relationships. That means what you uh, use as a kind of a map to make sense of uh, the common ground and the totality of uh, things. And the fourth broad category is the living systems uh, class of thought structures, which uh, uh, surface how you deal with tensions, how you see potential in conflicts, how you make evaluative comparisons between different systemic approaches and so on. So each of those thought uh, structure classes has uh, uh, a diversity of at least seven different thought structures. So you have, you come quickly to 28 thought structures that you can observe happening in a group. And what I learned was that if you observe what thought structures are unfolding in a group, asking questions from different thought structures really accelerates the quality of the dialogue 
and uh, the coming to a kind of a more integrative decision making. That's fascinating. So what do you think the dynamic is there? Is it that you are helping people laterally step out of their thought structure? Or are you helping the folks that are maybe thinking a little differently than the main group integrate better? Well, what you mainly do is opening the participants' minds. Uh, Because everyone is able to think process or to think relationship or to think context. But uh, we are so influenced through our education to think purely expert or logical analytical wise that uh, we, we start to reduce reality in uh, logical categories while reality is uh, simply not always logical. You need logic to make sense, but uh, use logic after you have explored context, process, relationship and transformation. And those thought structures, uh, you can look at them as a series of questions uh, that you can ask when you observe someone not using a certain thought structure. For example, you observe that somebody is not taking at all into account certain elements in the context. Well, instead of uh, saying that you need to uh, take into account this and this and this context, which is telling, uh, you have a series of uh, mind-opening questions. you can ask, uh, you know, if you consider this as uh, part of a whole, what would be the whole and what is the relationship between the part and the whole, which is a thought structure. And then people will suddenly start uh, thinking in a much more nuanced uh, way than before, becoming open for differences in opinion and differences in perspective. And that's what we rarely do in meetings. Meetings are, in my experience, too much characterized by different opinions uh, put forward uh, without any connection uh, taking place and without any transcendence taking place. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about where where, where can we find all of these 28 documented, because it sounds pretty powerful to study these and think about how they're emerging in our meetings. Well, uh, uh, I can refer to two books that I wrote together with uh, Otto Laske, uh, Dynamic Collaboration and Practices of Dynamic Collaboration, which you can find on my website, www.connecttransform.be. But they can also refer you to the the work of Otto Laske directly, uh, which you can find on his website, which is uh, interdevelopmentals.org. And for those who do not want to uh, read books, I've developed a rethinking game, which Mm. you can also find on my site, with uh, from each thought structure class, Uh, a number of uh, cards that you can use in meetings uh, to facilitate the meetings in a different way. So each of the thought structure classes has a different color, uh, either orange, blue, uh, green or uh, violet. 
uh, and uh, the cards contain a kind of leveling in complexity of the questions that you can ask. And uh, uh, especially in retro meetings or flashback uh, meetings or meetings uh, that, uh, well, uh, that focus on the question, how are we doing now? Uh, so when there is a, a willingness to take a meta perspective, you can simply distribute three cards to each participant and when they discuss an issue, uh, at a certain moment you just say, well, can we have a quick timeout and uh, let's select each one of us one card with one question that, if answered at this moment, uh, would uh, broaden our view uh, or bring together our perspectives on the issue. And then you share the questions or you can even make uh, variations on the question. Uh, the facilitator or the problem owner then selects one question and the group then uh, brainstorms the answers on that specific question before moving further. And it's my experience that if you do that two to three times in, in a meeting, that you might save uh, plenty of time and that you're able to solve issues because you have taken and explored perspectives that uh, have not been taken before in that meeting. I think that's really fascinating. So you kind of randomly shuffle out three cards to each person and as they reflect on the conversation, the topic at hand, they look at the three cards they have and think about which question they have that's going to provide the most value for them if the group were to answer or explore that question. Yeah, but there is one but. Uh, it's important uh, to know that you, you should not use all cards in all kinds of meetings. There are, as I, I uh, started to distinguish between three types of we spaces in meetings. Not all meetings are equal. You have continuous improvement meetings uh, where the focus is on the sub-processes that, that you could improve. And mostly that's a meeting where uh, efficiency and effectivity is uh, central. Uh, the second type of meetings is uh, what I call our value stream or operational flows meetings, where people from different departments across the company participate and where the indicators uh, are much more linked to the bottom line of the company. So the question is, how are we doing currently as a company? and what kind of transversal processes do we need to change. For example, a customer journey uh, setting is often either a value streams uh, meeting or a continuous improvement meeting. Or even lean or agile meetings do not always specify the level of complexity uh, in which the dialogue should take place to obtain good results. And depending on the type of meeting, you make a pre-selection of cards that you distribute. Mm. But not all questions will be helpful in all kinds of, uh, in all types of V-spaces. The third V-space 
is the business modeling we space uh, where rethinking the business model is uh, very key uh, often these have to do with uh, shifting uh, operational uh, models too uh, but that's a meeting where a long-term perspective and the future value creation in the company becomes central you could say that the continuous improvement meetings focus on improving current value creation within the uh, limits that teams are experiencing, but also within the degrees of freedom. The other side is the business model uh, space, where the future is central. And in the middle, you have uh, the value streams meeting, where there is a kind of an equilibrium to be uh, found between current and value uh, current and future value creation. It almost makes me think it maps to the three horizons of innovation. Uh, it, uh, it resembles a bit the three horizons of innovation. The difference here is that you really know that in the continuous improvement uh, space, you can make uh, most progress by uh, using a basic set of context and process uh, thought forms while in the value streams uh, domain, a combination of the more complex context and process thought forms combined with the relationship thought forms is essential. And in the uh, business modeling space, uh, you will have uh, most uh, breakthrough by using the transformational uh, thought form classes. So I want to come back to that point you made around excluding cards or hand selecting cards before the meeting are there any good rules for folks like are they looking at specific categories that they would be excluding or would it be more you're flipping through and finding the questions that feel like they're going to be pertinent for what the group's about to encounter no it's uh if you would do that you would use the cards in a very instrumental way mm. and you will probably contribute to uh, the narrowing dynamic that is in a team. What's important is that you really uh, make a kind of a pre-assessment. What's the type of complexity to be handled in a team? And what's uh, kind of the div developmental diversity in that team? And can I expect in that team a downwardly or an upwardly divided dynamic? That's an important uh, assessment that as a facilitator you can do before the meeting. In the meeting it will be important to really get in touch with the uh, train of thoughts in that meeting uh, in order to to make a good selection uh, of the cards. So the best is that you build upon the thought process that is going on and and standing in the middle of the thought process is very important. Mm. So, which is quite different from uh, a traditional facilitator's role, where you are, let's say, on the edge of, uh, of what happens in, in a team, and that you try to, uh, well, give everyone a sufficient space to voice uh, his opinion, his perspective, 
uh, or that you uh, safeguard that certain decision uh, making uh, procedures are followed, like in, for example, no objection decision making processes. Mm -hmm. And so I want to come back to that point you made around assessing the complexity. And I was really curious about the upward and downward dynamics. Like, how can folks understand that? Or what's that pre-assessment process look like? Well, uh, often it's uh, when you meet people observing uh, what's important for those people in their uh, self-conception, in their identity. Uh, to make it very simple, uh, it's, it's about maturity and uh, how able you are to take a meta-perspective on your own ego. Either you uh, operate in a very egocentric way uh, or you operate in a very self-conscious uh, way and there are a number of phases in between so that's the first assessment that you can do uh, and uh, participants in meeting in meetings differ in uh, in let's say their ability to take a meta perspective on their own ego uh, uh, the second uh, assessment that you do is when you look at uh, documents, uh, PowerPoints, all kinds of information coming from the team, even emails, uh, they already give you an idea on the thought structures used by the team and which ones are left out. So the text analysis can uh, be uh, quite of help. Interesting. I wonder if there's an opportunity to is there a software opportunity there to scan team communication and give some kind of assessment around how they're communicating? I didn't mention that, but I do have a software company that uh, at this moment is building that kind of software, yes. When should we expect that to be available? Uh, it will depend on the evolution of the COVID crisis. My main developer has COVID at this moment, so oh, well. that's a bit annoying. But the software is already uh, available in Dutch, uh, but mm. not yet in English. Got it. Cool. Well, that's exciting. So it's a, it's a software uh, making use of semantic intelligence. And mm -hmm. semantic intelligence is something different uh, than artificial intelligence, uh, by which I mean that it uh, is built on a language model and the algorithms uh, basically make use of the... Uh, language model. So the language model addresses how people or is built on a quite a large set of hypotheses on how people's thinking and ways of communicating in terms of thought structures and in terms of social emotional uh, maturity evolves throughout their adulthood. And it makes clear in what uh, phase uh, or stage you operate from and even what your next steps can be. Interesting. Yeah, a, a colleague of mine has been doing some really interesting work with GPT. My understanding is that GPT is not actually a semantic model, but similar in the sense that it's modeling language. But uh, he was exploring loading a giant corpus of content and letting this thing kind of 
listen to the conversation in the room and like suggest interesting things the team could explore from a divergent viewpoint standpoint. But it's interesting when I th- think about what he was doing coupled with your, your notion of these kind of thought structures, if that thing was intelligent enough to say, not just like pick something that seems semantically similar, but something that's not only semantically similar, but ties into the thought structure that needs to be introduced right now it could be really fascinating. Well, you know, there, there are probably different ways to arrive at, uh, at the same thing. And many colleagues are now uh, more and more focusing on how can we uh, directly influencing uh, what we can think about. And uh, a lot of uh, that research is driven by observations from artificial intelligence, that artificial intelligence is really limited to the logical analytical thought structures that we use, but uh, have uh, a lot of difficulties to address the more dialectical thought structures that uh, we also use. And dialectics is about uh, seeing what is not yet there. Mm. And you, you, you cannot give that to a computer. Right. So I want to shift gears a little bit because I wanted to come back to the power of self-organizing teams. So why, why is this such a, a focus for you and what's the importance as people consider, you know, the, the benefits? Well, you know, a, a lot of companies struggle with hierarchy in the sense that uh, through work groups, through all kinds of initiatives that uh, should make the structure more agile or lean, uh, uh, we are kind of breaking through a hierarchy. And uh, while the ideas on self-organization are not at all new in the 50s, there was a huge attention for self-organization in the British coal mines in the 80s. Most concepts of self-organization go back to uh, research done in the mid-80s. But nowadays it has become uh, again more popular because there, there, uh, we bump into the limits of uh, change that we can obtain through traditional hierarchical structures. We live in kind of the fourth industrial revolution, which means that change is kind of accelerating. And uh, the best uh, way to cope with increasing complexity, because that acceleration uh, is also about increasing the complexity, uh, what you see is that roles and functions change faster than ever before. And so self-organization seems uh, to be a, a kind of an attractive alternative for that. And uh, that has been reinforced by social media, for example, by companies like Spotify, who uh, started to reconceive their structure, and that has become very popular. Uh, I personally have followed now 63 uh, self-organizing initiatives over the last years, and what I see is that most of the initiatives fall back on hierarchy after two years after two years after implementation. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, that raises the question, what are the dynamics behind 
that that kind of turn back the, these uh, initiatives towards self-organization and self-management. And that has to do with, uh, let's say, uh, an insufficient understanding, in my opinion, of what it takes to embed good decision-making in teams. So most of the uh, projects on uh, self-organization or the transitions towards self-organizations are fueled from a behavioral point of view. Let's say, how do we agree on what uh, needs to be done by whom and what kind of heuristics uh, can be used for that? How can we improve our communication? Uh, what uh, would be our competency uh, framework and, and things like that. And they go kind of, uh, they miss the point that self-organization is not about activities, it's about designing uh, sub-processes in roles and allowing people to uh, make decisions within the set and the relationships of sub-processes in roles. And you can only do that if you start looking at uh, thought processes, because what people see as being related uh, and what in practice is being brought together in a kind of an accountability often uh, is not aligned. Mm. And as long as you do not align those two things, you, you will have uh, dysfunctional teams and dysfunctional self-organization. So self-organization is in many companies a kind of an ideology, a search for a difference in how to get things organized without uh, taking into account uh, recent uh, scientific research on what does it take really for teams to come to uh, good decision making with, which is reflected in a feeling of I'm being a part of a winning team here but the winning team has been translated in behavioral terms and kind of the, the thought dynamics are pushed in the background and most facilitators even do not see those dynamics which have to do with developmental diversity of people. For example, if uh, the majority of team members consider themselves as excellent team members, paying uh, a lot of attention to giving respect, openness of communication, trust, etc., etc., well, developmentally, those people tend to avoid feedback, to push feedback forward. And so they say, but if you look at reality, uh, they, uh, well, put up quite a number of things under the mat uh, and they do not uh, go into the discussion and observing what is not discussed in a team is uh, even more important than observing how the discussion unfolds. 
It's really interesting. You talk about the this because it's a pattern I've definitely seen with organizations, even ones that are very vocal about holacracy or you know um, self-organizing. Uh, there's kind of a, a, a reversion to the mean, if you will, <laughs> of going back to more hierarchical or, or getting rid of some of the practices. And it's interesting that you point out the decision-making protocols are the things that kind of people get hung up on. Yes, and for example, holacracy has a number of decision-making protocols, but they have become, in uh, often in some companies, a behavioral procedure. Mm. Uh, facilitators spend insufficient attention to the thought processes that are taking place while applying the process. Got it. One thing I've pondered on this topic has been a lack of clarity around how individual efforts connect into some broader need or broader purpose. Because if we allow self-organizing teams and these self-organizing teams go off on a complete tangent and it's not integrated with the value stream, the flow of kind of work and values, that can be problematic. And so... How do teams address that when they're self-organizing, making sure they're kind of aligning with and in concert with the broader goals? Well, uh, the, the answer is already in your question. We assume that people uh, are able to uh, make explicit the relationship between what they do and the broader context. That broader context can be an overarching goal uh, that broader context can be a shared insight, can be everything. But we assume that people do that. Uh, but that's not natural. Uh, many visions and strategies don't get translated because that, that translation is not a logical uh, process, it's a dialectical process. That means that you need to pay attention to the thought structures that are used. Uh, connecting to a value stream, uh, well, that requires relationship thinking. And the relationship thinking that we got uh, from our education at the university or whatever place is uh, often insufficient to see the systemic aspects uh, of a situation, to see the structural relationships or the patterns in relationships, and even doesn't allow us to look at implicit relationships. Uh, we are only focusing on the explicit relationships. So there, there, there are a lot of thought structures that we uh, are only becoming aware of when somebody makes them explicit and then you can start working with them but as long as they stay implicit well you might uh, even expect that uh, self or the the degree of self-organization is a function of the diversity or the fluidity of thinking present in a group uh, and the uh, type of diversity in social-emotional maturity. So it's a kind of a combination between both. You know, this is making me think about this concept of resistance to learning, or some people have referred to it as the, the curse of knowledge. And so this notion that an expert knows a lot of things, 
and trying to think or believe something that's contradictory to what the things they've known to be true is challenging. Whereas like, you know, someone new, it's a classic example of a big company getting disrupted by a startup because they're thinking different and they're looking, they're looking at the world from a different perspective. So I'm wondering, like just knowing that's a challenge that we have as organizations and as people, how hard is it as a facilitator to get people to shift their thought structures and see and embrace different ones it seems like there would be a lot of res- cognitive resistance there. And what do we need to do to help people kind of make that switch? Well, one key that you have as a facilitator is looking at someone's zone of proximal development. So everyone has a zone of proximal development where learning is comfortable and uh, then an anxiety zone. Uh, what most facilitators that I know uh, ignore is that proximal zone of development, uh, which is determined uh, by where are you on your developmental path. Uh, It's still very rare to find facilitators with an adult development uh, approach uh, of meetings or the adult development diversity uh, that you have in, uh, in meetings. And that means that you cannot ask every question to everyone because some questions will be up too abstract and will be pushed away. So you need to uh, build yourself as a facilitator continuously hypothesis on uh, where is the developmental level of that person and what kind of uh, mind-opening question could make the difference for that person at this moment. And if you do that, uh, you meet very little resistance. Uh, Resistance is a concept uh, created by facilitators. People do not resist if you uh, uh, respect them in where they are and where they are evolving to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important mindset to have as a facilitator because if they're situationally resistant, they're because they're they're what we're asking them to do is outside of their zone. It's not that they're intentionally doing something to be dysfunctional or, or push back on us. And I think understanding and embracing where people are at is really important. So, wow, it's been, it's been really fun chatting with you. And I, I got to say, I'm a big fan of card decks. And this one that you've made sounds really incredible. So I'm certainly going to go out and, and get the rethinking game right after we wrap up here. So I recommend everyone go and do that. And definitely very fascinating hearing about these 28 thinking structures and, and how we can use them to, to shift the conversation and um, and really get people thinking and, and working together in a completely different way. I think that's a, a powerful lens that you have, and hopefully more facilitators can start conducting meetings in this way. So really awesome to hear about this stuff. I love the work that you're doing. I hope you continue to, to dive deeper. Best of luck on the software. I think there's a lot of potential there. And um, just want to uh, give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with, uh, with the final message. Well, develop an interest in adult development, I would say, because it's a domain that uh, has been undervalued uh, uh, 
it has created since the 70s a lot of uh, insights in how human beings evolved throughout adulthood. And it always fascinates me that uh, so few people uh, take those insights into account in their facilitation work. Uh, I'm regularly myself sharing bits of insights uh, uh, through LinkedIn posts. So I have a, a LinkedIn uh, address, Jan de Vish, one word, uh, or not. Yeah, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and through, through the books that I'm uh, writing, uh, they are all available on my website, uh, www.connecttransform.be. Uh, or you can find uh, my most recent book also on Amazon. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Jan. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for being invited. And good luck with uh, continuing this uh, beautiful initiative. So thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together, voltagecontrol.com.